Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When I know part of how the sausage is made... The sausage tastes way better, and I can see why and how that sausage is meaningful in an otherwise 7 out of 10 video game. <laughs> Hello and welcome to PocketBuds, a back pocket podcast where I talk to my best buds about video games and stuff. This week, we're talking about 2023 in video games. One could argue that 2023 has been a pretty huge year for video games in many ways. It's hard to really put into words, but we're going to have to anyway, considering this podcast is just words. This year started with perhaps the most predictable thing that could have happened, the end of Google Stadia on January 18th. The only thing that we couldn't predict was when it had happened, and who knew it was going to last as long as it did? The next month saw Super Nintendo World open to the public in Universal Studios Hollywood. It's basically the same vibe as the one in Japan except worse food, and when you leave you're hit with a harrowing reminder that you are in Hollywood. Nintendo closed the 3DS and Wii U eShops in March, with Nintendo doing that funny little thing where they make older games practically impossible to access via legal means. Oh, and E3 was cancelled because nobody wanted to go. Why would they when you can watch a bug-eyed Jeff Keighley flick through cinematic trailers for two hours? Speaking of the man who might be a Muppet, Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest popped off at the start of June, as well as the announcement of Apple's very expensive Apple Vision Pro, which they actually haven't made for gaming. So why'd I even bring it up? June was also the start of the end for Embracer Group, with that big Saudi deal gone bust and resulting in them killing many a darling. Unpopular opinion, but these Embracer guys are kind of sus. Charles Martinet announced in August that Ida would no longer be a him, a Mario, or any other Nintendo characters for that matter. Mamma mia! This month also saw the closure of Relition by Embracer Group. These guys stink! E3 came back into the news again in September to let everybody know that they weren't doing anything next year either. This was also the month where Unity decided to kill any goodwill that they had left with the announcement of a new retroactive licensing fee for their game engine. P.E.U. But the September gaming shenanigans don't end theirs. This month also saw Sony Interactive Entertainment CEO Jim Ryan announcing his plans to leave the company by April next year. While his departure was by choice, you couldn't say the same about the approximately 850 employees that Epic Games laid off a day later. Boo! It's October now, and the acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft has been finalised, which is perhaps one of the scariest parts of this month. But in good news, Mario got a new voice in Kevin Afghani, who's my age, and that doesn't make me feel weird at all. Oh yeah! Coming towards the end of the year, November saw more layoffs at Ubisoft, Amazon Games, Digital Bros, Humble Games, Congregate, and Unity. It was probably one of the worst months for layoffs this year, and that's saying something. 
And now it's December and we're at the end of the year. It's been a huge year for game releases with hits like Baldur's Gate 3, Alan Wake 2, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, Armored Core 6, Pikmin 4, and Super Mario Bros. Wonder blowing everybody away. And that's just a drop in the ocean of really good releases from this year, especially in regards to the indie market. There were a lot of great indies this year. So I thought it fitting that I chat with someone who made one of the best indie releases of 2023. Joining me today to talk about his game El Paso Elsewhere, as well as the state of the games industry in 2023 is BAFTA nominated studio head of Strange Scaffold, Zalavia Nelson Jr. How has this year been for you? Because this is the this is the 2023 in review episode, right? Of Pocket Buds. And I feel like 2023 for you has been pretty darn fantastic. So talk about it. How's it been? It's been deeply surreal. Because there's been a lot of high points this year. Forbes 30 Under 30. Congrats. El Paso Elsewhere getting a lot of Game of the Year nominations and doing well on the market as well. Spoken a lot of cool places. Had some cool accolades. Studio still alive. But also a variety of both personal and professional hits that nearly laid me flat entirely. Thank God that I'm still here. I recognize how close I was to not being here. And I recognize that I, like a lot of my peers in the industry, am very tired because to even have all of the attention and expectation of, it's been such a great year, hasn't it? You've had such a great year. And it's like, you're covered in blood. You look just like Renona Ryder at the end of Heather's. There's a cigarette <laughs> hanging just out of your mouth. And you're like, yeah, it's been a bit of great year. <laughs> Yeah, I'm living. I'm thriving. It is what it is. I think any person who says that they've been thriving this year is a liar. Sorry. I think we're all surviving. Or you should push them out a window. Yeah. Oh, thriving. How about now? And you push them to their death. <laughs> yeah. Not to their death. Yeah. Oh. Just their <laughs> their injury. Let let them experience the reality of pain. Yeah. Be Jigsaw <laughs> for a second. He seems to be thriving always. I mean, okay, he's got that kind of wackadoo moral compass where it's like you <laughs> made a mistake three years ago. So what if that mistake? was a very scary owie trap. And I think that's good. I think it's, I actually think it's very interesting because sometimes people don't learn from their mistakes because they've never been in a saw trap. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's a good opportunity. And I think Jigsaw gets the honor of being able to choose the trick. And so I, I would agree with you. I think he is thriving this year. And did, you, did Spirals come out this year? It was Saw X. That's Saw it. X made $106 million this year off of a budget of $13 million in a year where people are continuing to say more urgently than ever, you can't sell something in a cinema that isn't a superhero movie or an action movie. Horror, we still acknowledge, does well, but for Saw X to do as well as it does, incredible. I think it proves that people are coming around yeah. yeah, on John Kramer. Our boy John <laughs> Kramer is about to get moisturized. He says, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be May. Yeah, I think I'm just impressed with not only that profit, but also 13 million in this day and age is now considered a pretty small budget for a movie, which is crazy. Because yeah, absolutely, that's just especially so for a franchise money. film. Oh my god, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just gonna say Scream Six that came out this year. Yeah, that was like 35 million. Yeah, minimum. That's just so much freaking money. Like I, I, I can't comprehend that much money. It's apparently everywhere. Like it's like, oh yeah, you know this this movie costs this. I'm like, how does that even happen? Remember when Paranormal Activity came out and everybody was like, this movie costs two dollars to make. Obviously more than that, but like everyone was so stoked because like it did so well despite only I think it was eighty k. Was that the budget for the first Paranormal Activity? It was shot for fifteen thousand. Yeah, and then it got a modification that cost an additional 200,000 once it was acquired. Mm. But for 215,000, they sure did make 194 million, again, minimum, <laughs> not even thinking about streaming rights and stuff. That is wildly impressive. The thing is though, Paranormal Activity did not come out in 2023. And this is the episode 2023 in review. So we got to talk about yeah. what happened this year. A big thing happened this year for you, El Paso Elsewhere, which has just been knocking it out of the park. Like, Thank you so much. Were you kind of prepared for this this kind of positive response to your game? Like, what's the response been like? We've been getting eights and nines and tens, and people have been saying it's one of their favorite games of the year, some of their favorite games of all time. 
a lot of game of the year season nods, a lot of awards buzz, a lot of cool discussions occurring around the game uh, about, you know, where else does the El Paso elsewhere universe appear next, which is all super, super exciting. And I expected we would get sixes and sevens, <laughs> not because we hadn't made a good game, but because... The types of games Strange Scaffold makes are focused on being deeply intentional about where they put their focus. I'm not trying to make the biggest game ever. I'm trying to make a game that may be your favorite game of all time. It may be your favorite game of the year. It's a game that couldn't be made unless it was made at a faster development pace, at a cheaper budget point. You can't justify making a game like an airport for aliens currently run by dogs at a $50 million <laughs> budget point. That's the actions and perspective of a madman who will soon be assassinated. Yeah. El Paso, but in this industry where we're at right now, we're going to be talking about this a bit later, but the perspective is and has been, especially over the course of the pandemic, bigger is better. Yeah. A game that is made for less than a million dollars can't really have an impact and having El Paso elsewhere that sticks to its guns in being really significant, really high quality, but also picking and choosing its battles to reach that point. The idea of if we don't do something here, that means that there's all this other stuff we can do here, including in a, a fully original hip hop horror album <laughs> alongside the game that's now being turned into a vinyl. Oh, love that. I felt would reach people and would have huge fans. But even just going by the review scores we've achieved in the past, Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, sixes and sevens. An airport for aliens currently run by dogs, sixes and sevens. But people walk up to me unprompted who aren't even game developers or aren't even industry to tell me it's one of their favorite games oh, of all time. That's so nice. And to have El Paso elsewhere with our development perspective that is based around trying to be the model of the studio is better, faster, cheaper, and healthier. Mm -hmm. Making games better, faster, cheaper, and healthier than industry assumes as possible. To have a game made with that perspective achieve this kind of reception. I am so grateful and thankful that people see us and saw it, but I'm also so aware that it, that might not have happened too. So when people ask me about what's coming next, I'm not saying time to make El Paso Elsewhere 2 a $15 million game. <laughs> Let's go franchise, baby. <laughs> I'm committed instead to saying we're going to keep making games better, faster, cheaper, and healthier, some small, some bigger, but we aren't going to bet the farm on any one game because that way lies madness yeah. and the charred remains of the people who have made your favorite game of all time, maybe not having a job yeah. ever again. Absolutely. I mean, like, as you said, a big part of Strange Scaffold is better, faster, cheaper, healthier, very specifically for El Paso elsewhere. What has the development process kind of been like compared to your previous work with the studio? How was you know, how was it get, just getting the game out of the door? I would say that the process was admittedly one that did not satisfy some of our overall goals for the studio. Mm. Because I'd say the first three quarters were better, faster, cheaper, and healthier. Basically zero crunch. We made a surprise Halloween game called El Paso Nightmare, which is a prequel as well. That's a different genre, first person horror game. With all the assets from the game, we made that in seven weeks. There was one person who had one 50 hour week and that was it. Which especially in game development standards, especially now, is kind of unheard of. Yeah. And that game got well-received too. So for three quarters of the game, we built all of our tools. We made this small side game. We had three and a half years to figure out what the game is and to develop it in a really reasonable way and build the foundation of what the game would be. Mm. But then hit the afterburner starting end of last year, beginning of this year, where basically what you see in the game, a lot of that is 10 months of work built off of two and a half years. Yeah. And that kind of weird conjoined process of we wouldn't have been able to do this in nine or 10 months if we hadn't spent that f previous two and a half years. But also the fact that we did not manage to maintain the team health in that last nine months that I would have liked that weighs on me heavily as a leader. And if I don't take cues from that going forward too, then I'm not doing my job. So we've started talking on Twitter about Project Beast, which is our next action game. That's gonna have a tighter development timeline. It is a first person action game that we haven't revealed too much about as far as context or setting, mm -hmm. but a good way of describing it in shorthand is black Jason Bourne, <laughs> black John Wick, 
in the Alaskan forest fighting government agents. That game will have a rap song in it. It will have really intentionally built cool levels. It's gonna be a first person action game. The thing that made El Paso Elsewhere so painful was it ended up having a cyclical development process where script would impact level, which would impact music, which would impact script, which would impact level again. And especially in the last few weeks, like we were just working, working, working because everything was impacting everything else. And everyone saw an opportunity to make their work a little bit cooler, a little bit cooler, a little bit cooler. And we were trying to tighten this massive thing, especially for a team of our size, into something that would run well on someone's computer or Xbox and that would ship out the door in a semi-stable state. The steps we're taking for Project Beast, uh, what we're currently calling it, are to specifically avoid a lot of those issues while maintaining a really fresh, punchy action game. And I regret how often when we talk about game development and about a series of projects coming from the same creator or studio that you even when the retrospective has just been had and we get to see that and they talk in a postmortem about the ways that they failed or ways that they feel that they failed themselves or their team that doesn't get carried over into the next game in a meaningful way the joke is everyone says that they're going to make a one-year project and then it t- ends up taking four years and if that is the same case five games in then something is broken And that's the type of culture around game development that I'm trying to confront and confront in a very public and transparent way on the behalf of our players. Because when you don't do that, the games suffer. And the people who make them, at minimum, get burnt out in ways that means that they can't achieve the things that made you fall in love with the studio's work or that individual's work in the first place. Mm. You and your studio have been pretty transparent when it comes to the development process, the hurdles you face, and, you know, also the wins. But transparency has been a huge thing for you. What sparked that? Do you think your background in games journalism has had any, like, influence on how you conduct yourself as a game developer? I think it's had some influence, mainly on the idea that as a journalist, where my career actually really started to pick up as a journalist was when I started my game dev career. It right. coexisted for a little bit. And what I realized was when I peeked behind the curtain, even on just small solo twine games, the realities of how we talk about games and how we make games are so obfuscated mm-hmm. from the actual game development process that it might as well be gibberish. So realizing, oh, part of the reason that the way we talk about games and some of the ways that we talk about the artistry of games is so broken and sometimes so shallow is because we literally don't know how about how games are made. Mm. And it's all rooted in back in the 90s, blast processing. <laughs> and we've taken that blast processing approach. This game console is better because as blast processing, don't ask any questions. And now you extend that to a modern day where we're doing miraculous things on a night daily basis and the audience doesn't know Mm. which means that they can't speak meaningfully to it their experiences are in core ways limited yeah in the same way that it would be if in hollywood we acknowledge when a movie has incredible practical effects because we know what cgi is we don't know the first principles of that as far as game development Mm. And that's a way that the games industry and games marketing at large has failed us. So seeing that from both sides as a journalist, I I think you could accurately say was realizing how deep of a breach of knowledge there was and trying to correct it as both a moral stance and as one to hopefully make the experience of playing and enjoying games more rich as well. Because I know for a fact on my end, when I know part of how the sausage is made, the sausage tastes way better and I can see why and how that sausage is meaningful in an otherwise 7 out of 10 video game. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of a huge part of the conversation around game development from the perspective of uh, games journalists, but also gamers. I think, you know, they kind of have a different perspective, but I feel like a big part of that is just how huge and complex it is and how hard it is to explain on a kind of written level. I mean, of course. And I think for the record, first of all, the audience is not obligated to know this or extend no. the type of perspective or grace that comes from knowing how the how the games get made. But what you've touched on, which is so important, is it's so hard to express these things because games have been around for nearly 70 years and we're only just now having these conversations. So Mm. literally, it's trying to have 
super high level conversations about how and why something is made and how that impacts the final project and the experience you're having as a player when there isn't even an alphabet. So like trying to type <laughs> a <laughs> dissertation without an alphabet is actually really hard, it turns out. And this is why I think you're seeing part of the really vicious reaction around live service games and transparency lately with games like Fortnite, with games like Destiny, where at a core level, if as a player, you don't know how many departments get involved in making a modern character, right? So back in the day, one of the pieces of trivia for the Tomb Raider series is that within the span, of, I think about a week, they tried six different variations on Lara Croft hmm. to make one of Spider-Man's shoes <laughs> in Marvel's Spider-Man 2 in the modern day. You're looking at potentially months of work from a team of people. Oh my god! When a ultimate skin gets inducted into Overwatch, if you're looking at developers talking about it on Twitter, they talk about at least ten departments that are involved, at least ten people to make one skin. So when we talk about update frequency or about what content is an update or what limitations developers face, it's a really tough, weird, complicated discussion that does sometimes fall back on the fact that the developer messed something up crucially or is yeah. bound by processes or limitations that make their lives much harder. But discussing literally anything related to game development at all when we still don't have the alphabet, when we still don't have the vocabulary for discussing the interconnected nature and complexity of modern games is something that if we don't acknowledge it now, it's just going to get worse and hound mm. us more. And I think one of the biggest warning signs of that is Sakurai. Sakurai of Smash Brothers <laughs> has a YouTube channel now where he talks about game development. He did a video about QA. Yeah. And he talked about how the exponential complexity of games today is such that you literally cannot find every uh, every problem and make a stable game, even if you have all the time in the world. Yeah. And when Sakurai, with the full backing of Nintendo and one of the best-selling games franchises behind him, says that, if we don't take that as an indictment and as a warning sign that we are at the edge of a bliff <laughs> and we have to recognize that, acknowledge that, and confront it as a medium and as players and as journalists before we fall off, things gonna get bad. <laughs> things gonna get real bad real fast. This year, I feel like I, we're, we're kind of jumping into the insanity of game development in, in this day and age. In the current year, I feel <laughs> like it'd make a lot of sense to kind of start off our little retrospective looking at the bad news, <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately. To be real, you know, like, I think it'd be nice for us to end this episode with the the good that's come out this year and, and the good, good stuff, the good gaming stuff of 2023. And some of the funny gaming stuff and some of 2023. The, oh, some of the goofy, silly ha-ha. Like, a dev studio got a game temporarily banned from the eShop for allegedly promoting child gambling. Yeah, I like, wonder that's which a story game that was. About. I really, like, oh, I wonder who worked on that. It's just so fascinating. I can't remember who it was, but <laughs> they they must still have really weird thoughts about both them, their games and their capacity for chaos. Maybe let's start with some of the bad stuff. Talk about the bad first. <laughs> 2023 has been an absolutely tremendous year for video game releases and and you've seen stuff this year that is just really changing the game. Unfortunately, this year has also been a financial collapse in many, many ways, in many, many areas. We're seeing cost of living on the rise. We're seeing companies fall. We're seeing the dollar crumbling. We're, we're seeing things going bad financially as a whole. And when it comes to the games industry, you can really, really see that struggle. There was definitely a moment, it was definitely mid-COVID, where I think everyone kind of just had heaps of money out of nowhere, <laughs> right? There was just kind of this whole big thing of money that just kind of came out of thin air. And from that, they were like, let's, let's invest. Let's, let's really just start making stuff happen now. And you, you, you see a lot of the acquisitions kind of started around COVID time. And it's really interesting that it's this year that we're seeing a lot of those acquisitions kind of crumble. I think Embracer is a really good example of 
going bad. Tiny Builds just had a bunch of layoffs. They did several acquisitions during the pandemic. Yeah. I can actually, if you're interested, provide some context as to why some of this happened from a wider industry perspective. Dude, I'm so freaking interested. Go off. How familiar are you with high-level capitalism Calvin Ball? (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Huh? <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> Great. The way that business, capital B business works when you enter the highest echelons of capital B business is fundamentally different than what is basically ever represented on TV and what you know as a person who lives a normal life and does a job and (laughs) you you pay for your food, you work a job and you think – you know what? I do want that Asterion face mask on Etsy for for non-weird <laughs> reasons. So <laughs> normal. As a normal person, you are often not exposed to the actual mechanisms of how capitalism and how the markets work at the highest echelons. A good example of this is something that I don't know the official name for it, but I've come to call it Phoenix Theory, which is basically if everyone goes bankrupt in your sector – who is not you? This is a mm. thing taught in like MBA classes around the world. <laughs> If everyone goes bankrupt except for you, you're actually behind. Because as soon as they bankrupt, they're allowed to take on more debt and and do an accelerated growth or pivot that because you have maintained your workers and have the same amount of debt as before, you haven't had your debts cleared. You still have all the debt from before, so you're actually weighed down and behind compared to everyone who's gone bankrupt. That's the goblin-brained way that business starts to get talked about when you encounter these closed room environments. So I'm just looking at your face contorting into a mask of horror. It's it's horrifying. <laughs> so there's three things that happened. Yeah. First one was that games started following all of entertainment in the sense that everyone has been making bigger bets, the biggest bets they can. It's like being in a slot machine and hitting max bet mm. because – the idea of having a profitable $200,000 game versus a profitable $1 million game was seen as an exponential potential loss. Why take on five profitable indie games? Maybe one of them would be unprofitable at $200,000 when if you have $5 million indie games, if one of them does well, does really well, then it's gonna, the amount of money it's going to make is way more than all of those profitable, successful, small ones, even if the other $4 million indie games fail. Yeah. So indie games got pushed to make their budgets way bigger. AAA got the push to make their budgets way bigger. The dev timelines got longer, and that period of escalation means that we're seeing the biggest, most interconnected, most ambitious, technically marvelous games that have ever come in this medium's history – yeah. But you can see very actively, we were talking about the GTA 6 trailer that just came out. Yeah. GTA 3 was a two-year dev cycle. GTA Vice City was one year later. Red Dead Redemption 2 took eight years. Yeah. And thousands of people. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. So what happened was everyone escalated. That's part point number one, right? Interest rates went down, which means, quote unquote, money gets cheaper because when interest rates are down, you can acquire more debt more cheaply, which means there's more you can do with it. Mm. Embracer was particularly infamous for when all the interest rates went down, 
they could basically reverse leverage a huge amount of debt to gather more and more studios and use their increased value as an overall portfolio to take on more debt to acquire more studios. And the last thing that happened is that your fiduciary obligation as a CEO is that at the highest levels of how we do capital B business mm. is that if you can make more money investing in the markets than you can investing in products, your responsibility to your shareholders or to your stakeholders on a larger company level is to invest into the markets. So when you have everyone escalating and everyone taking on massive amounts of debt and then investing all of that debt into the markets because the markets are also going up during this pandemic season in, this, in various cat sectors and categories, yeah. you hit 2023 where put aside other swings of fate, the biggest bets that you've been making take longer than ever take unexpected time, take unexpected budget. Some of those fail, you're in a really bad place. Yeah. Interest rates go up. They go up a lot, actually. So the price of money, quote unquote, goes way up. That kicks you in the face. Then finally, because you've also been using your over leveraged debt to invest in the markets and the markets take a downturn because the price of money has gone up for everyone. You're looking at your portfolio of games, which is not the only investment that you're making. And you have to point a gun <laughs> at <laughs> all of your babies because the wild overextension of this isn't just happening to games, by the way. It's happening in Hollywood. You're seeing layoffs everywhere. You're seeing tax write-offs on movies. Giant tax write-offs on movies, removing them from availability to the public, period. Yeah. Because the bill is coming due for what any average person would call deeply irresponsible living. But because that perspective never becomes available to us as or average people, mm. all we can see is the symptoms of horrific consequences and change. Yeah. So yeah, to provide perspective on why this year has been so wacko, despite the biggest year of game releases, the most hard hitting culmination of a lot of studios legacy, Part of why it's been so bad, if you are not familiar, is because a lot of people have been playing Calvin Ball with a lot of money, and quite suddenly, the value and costs and consequences of that Calvin Ball came due, and they aren't changing their priorities. So I know of institutions that literally did not plan around things like Game Pass yeah. picking up their games. They literally just did not plan for it. They thought that Game Pass or one platform would pick up or some platform out there would pick up one of their games. And when they didn't, the bill that they were held left holding had forced them to scramble and take emergency measures. Yeah. And when you see a big company, you want to believe big means stable. Yeah. But what games has proved this year is that bigs does not mean stable. Big means if it falls apart, the wave of lives that gets impacted is exponential. Yeah. And I can speak from experience, unfortunately, right now, still being exposed to a lot of financial sectors of the industry. People aren't changing their desires either. They're still trying to take the largest bets they possibly can, in some cases to dig themselves out of the hole. And it reveals that a lot of the investment in games does not resemble necessarily investment or creative arts or the intersection of business and arts, it's gambling. Yeah, We've all seen compulsive gamblers when they're on a losing streak. And that's unfortunately why we're gonna end up still, I think in the next few years, having some of the biggest and best games we've ever seen, some of the most impressive showcases we've ever seen, and also massive human fallout, yeah. and a huge rebuilding process that takes potentially even more time yeah. because we have to, from the baseline, figure out how to get all of our resources in a place to take those kinds of swings again. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely important to note that, like, you know, as you said, like a lot of these games coming out have been in the development process for years and years and years. So when these games started being developed, economically, we were in a pretty good spot for developing games. And then now we're in a spot where that's not really viable anymore and then as well you know as you said it, it is kind of a huge gamble so many of these companies and like I shouldn't say this is a defining like company bad but realistically no a lot of these a lot of these big companies that are kind of buying up lots of studios realistically and sadly it's not always because of our love of the craft it's because they think they can get something back from it. And when they don't get something back from it, it's not valuable to them anymore. 
And it's sad. Embracer essentially built up their entire portfolio specifically to get a Saudi buyout. Yeah. And that's one deal. <laughs> and that one deal fell through. <laughs> and now the people who made the Insurgency series, massively popular tactical shooter, was doing good business yeah. for years. Got acquired, now shuttered. Now having a bunch of its staff, the remaining staff, put into other sectors inside of Embracer. There will still be people working on Insurgency Sandstorm. Yeah. And some other projects, but the cost of the biggest games of our medium is that a lot of other games don't get made. And that's why when I think of 2023, what I think of is things like the closure of Sony Japan. Are you familiar with this? Yeah. So for those who aren't, Ape Escape, Gravity Rush, <laughs> Pat Upon, that studio got dissolved and absorbed. And when we look at a big, big game, a game that costs 200 million, we often don't think about the 10, $20 million games that get shuttered, dissolved, or wholesale denied as a result. Yeah. But that's what we're looking at. Gamers are being deprived of choice. Mm. I was nearly not able to make El Paso elsewhere for this exact reason. People are really loving that it makes these choices and it's slow motion, all this different stuff, different stuff. They love the art style. We had people as late as this year with the game almost coming out, offering us large figures to redo the art style. <laughs> Extend the game out by another year if needed, because the game will of course do better if you redo everything, right? Right. We had people where the condition for us getting funding was potentially removing the slow motion from the game. You know, the slow motion shooter we're making that people are sad about because it's like a Max Payne spiritual yeah, successor. You know the thing that's kind of the point? Yeah. they. <laughs> so like, I'm very thankful for where Strange Scaffold is at yeah. because we were able to make specific choices because we were detached from a lot of the mechanisms that to simply survive would have forced us to make things that compromise the games for our players. Yeah. And I think, and the reason I'm so aggressive and sometimes dancing on the edge of stuff, advocating for better, faster, cheaper, healthier games is because I want to give players the experiences they used to have even. Mm. You don't get a Katamari Damashi made when every game, quote unquote, has to be $100 million to be really successful. Yeah. And I want to be able to provide games you could never experience otherwise. Mm. And you don't get to do that, at least right now, without taking a big swing on trusting players to follow you into making games with focused specific choices. Yeah, it's very interesting that you brought up that point when it came to being offered a whole lot of money to change a pretty like huge part of your game, because I think this year has been both a year of visual spectacles, but also visual simplicity. And I'm I'm going to back that mm. up in a moment because I think it's time that we move to the good news. <laughs> I think it's about time we move to the good news. Absolutely. 2023 has been a pretty, pretty huge year for games. And I, I think I look to the indie market first because I feel like it's obvious that a whole bunch of incredible AAA games have come out this year. We can see it from just how many double ups there are in the Game Awards nominations. So it's been pretty good. Yeah. But for the indie world. One that I want to start on, I feel like is an incredible example of how it does not matter how a game looks if you've got a good bit of programming behind it. And that's Lethal Company. Mm. That game, it's not the most great looking game. Some may say it's kind of ugly. However, I would never say that. <laughs> I think it's a great example of, as you said, I think Dave the Diver is also a really good one where Ooh. Dave the Diver comes from a pretty massive company in certain respects, but it looks unified and holistic. And it, yeah. it turns out that art direction, that saying we want to do this cool thing for our players and this is what that looks like, that will win you accolades even over the prettiest technical showcase out there. Yeah. Dave the Diver, I was actually going to mention it later because I was going to talk about indies, I was going to talk about AAA, and then I was going to talk about that one in between. Because Dave the Diver is a very interesting one where I've had a pretty long think about it. Because like at first it was a very simple thing of like, that's not an indie game. But I honestly look at, I look at Dave the Diver in a very similar way that I look at Katamari Damacy, where it's like, it is a weird game that has been brought out from a big studio mm. in, in Nexon. And I think at first, there was a part of me like I don't think it's fair that it is in the same realm accolades wise as these you know indie games that were made by a small small studios however I think jumping to that conclusion so quickly also gives me a bit of pause because I want to see more of those games coming from big studios I want to see 
big studios making little studios inside their big studios that make weird games. I think Dave the Diver getting as much love as it did is awesome. Absolutely. I think like a great example of this as well is Grow Home. Mm. Grow Home is by Ubisoft. Yeah. And it, it is a game that is aiming for different things. And in fact, it's allowed to aim for different things because the rest of that entity, like this was released in 2015, Grow Home. Yeah. The rest of Ubisoft was doing Far Cry <laughs> and Assassin's Creed, which means if you create the space for it, here's what else your devs can do. Mm. And I think players being able to call for, hey, we want more games that are quite simply smaller, focused, get to do different things because they exist at a different scale and they don't have to make back a $200 million return. Yeah, I'm super on board with that. So when I look at Dave the Diver, some people have been trying to get Dave the Diver out and they've been calling for people like El Paso elsewhere to take its spot in there. Yeah. But I am deeply excited as Dave the Diver receives all this commercial and critical reception to see how that may impact studios yeah. to go on and say, you know what, we can make a Dave the Diver while we're taking this $200 million bet. And when we do more of that, we get more games Absolutely. and we get cooler games and we get different games. And Lord almighty, it felt for a while like we weren't getting different games for a while. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, our Dave the Divers come from our Katamaris. They come from our Deblobs. Like, they they come from little chances that big big companies take on little studios. Like, it's cool to see. It's awesome. And there should definitely be more of it. But I think, as well, this year has been so huge for indies in general. Lethal Company is a great example. Dredge, I think, is is a fantastic example, but also an example very, very close to my heart because that does come from a New Zealand studio. Heck yeah. And New Zealand does not get the praise that it deserves for the amount of really cool games coming out of there. I think we've gotten a bit more of a spotlight on Australian games with, with your Untitled Goose games and your Hollow Knight and most recently, I'd say Cult of the Lamb from last year. A lot of the amazing stuff League of Geeks has done. Oh my God, League of Geeks. We are recording at a time where literally today it was announced League of Geeks had to halt production on Jump Light Odyssey and make the entire team redundant. And it's so sad because I think Jump Light Odyssey is such an incredible example of coming out in early access flawed and working actively with the community to bring it back. Like they went from having mixed reviews to very positive on Steam. And that is so impressive. It's so difficult to reach too. Oh my God, yes. We see the success stories of No Man's Sky and of Cyberpunk 2077 and and how they went from releasing a flawed product and then coming back, bringing it back. And everybody's like, this is so great, which it is. But that is five times harder for a team like League of Geeks, who probably don't have as much funding at all and also have a much smaller team. Don't have the same funding, Don't aren't in, this, in the same industry centers. If, if I may call out a quick uh, story for this, just to add to the context for the stuff you're talking about, Absolutely. I think a similar one to call out for this is Mask of the Rose. Yeah. The Fail Better Games team, I DM'd them a few times during its development as they revealed more and I said, hey, so why would you do this? <laughs> Why would you do this to yourselves? This is this is a really rough and wild thing. It has story branches for every configuration. Yeah. Custom-built story branches, mind you, not AI. Yeah. For every configuration of its world and story, and the player gets to manipulate that to solve a murder. And there's romance. <laughs> so, and when that came out, certain, especially calibration of that content, that was, I think, a mixed or even a negative review. Yeah. And they pulled it back to mostly positive. Exponentially less resources than a lot of these other teams that have done that. It is so impressive and so hard to do. And that is just a huge achievement. The League of Geeks here in Australia are kind of one of the beacons. They still are. Mm. Even despite this, they still are because it's undeniable how much important work they've done for the local industry. So many people have come out of League of Geeks better off. And... Uh, that just from that experience that they had there. some A lot of people at League of Geeks, it's their first job in the video games industry. And then they move on from that and, and do better. And I think, like, you know, not do better. They learn and they grow and, and they go on to, to do more. It's not a case of better, it's more. Because 
there's already so little opportunity in in the Australian games industry. So to be able to come out of it on even a slightly positive side is is an impressive thing. And so it's it's so heartbreaking to see what's happened with the Jump Flight Odyssey team, but at the same time, so impressive to see what they managed to do in the time that they've been able to work on the game. And, you know, Solium Infernum looks awesome and they're still doing stuff with Armello, which is great. And it's it's just sad, but it's it's also undeniable that they've done such incredible work in this industry. Speaking of good things that happened this year, they revealed Solium and Infernum. If y'all haven't wishlisted it on Steam, please do so. No other team I can think of in the industry is as well prepared to make that and make it special as League of Geeks. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God, yes. One of my favorite things about this year is that we've seen a lot of the culmination of a lot of studios work and seeing that trend and seeing people appreciate and call out like these studios are able to eat because as in the the phrase of like it ate uh because <laughs> they got to exist long enough to take the swings that they are now alan wake 2 Baldur's Gate 3 the game awards is filled with sequels in a very cool specific sense of all of these studios were, are able to stand on this stage right now armored core 6 after oh. a long absence because they're still in it and still making amazing games. Yeah. Just the sheer amount of incredible things that we've seen come out this year is a testament to just how much talent there is in the industry and how much it's it's worth on a creative level. Like Baldur's Gate 3 is unlike anything else. It is unlike anything else. Just plain and simple. And I will say they did have the luxury of being able to put that game out in early access and have people be patient with them while it was in early access. When it came out in early access, notably, that was a 7 out of 10 game. Now, it's most likely going to be game of the year. Yeah. And that's so cool to see, to have that opportunity and to have that privilege to come out in early access and and become better over time to then become one of the best releases of this year. That is awesome. And then we've got Tears of the Kingdom, which was delayed. Yeah. Delayed for the reason of they wanted to polish it. They wanted to perfect this game before it came out. I think, once again, is a testament to give developers time and they will make a great product. I feel like so many things that came out this year are a testament to the development world's love and passion for what they create. I think on that respect... First of all, one last call out for regions that we don't usually see yeah. or at least talk about games from. Lies of P coming from a Korean game dev studio. Oh, Don't give a lot of appreciation to the amazing both indie and just like dev scene in Korea. Amazing stuff there. Yeah. But I think on the other side of the coin, just look at the Game Awards nominees for a time, right? Because sometimes when you have something that exists in a smaller space, something really special happens. Mm. Hi-Fi Rush. Oh, my God. Starting off the year with such a bang is something that I'm so glad I got to witness. Yeah. Like, it felt like games like that in particular are kind of extinct. Oh, dude, a real flashbang even because that game came out of nowhere and still hit. Mm. Like that, I think, was a clear labor of love. And and oh, God, I loved Hi-Fi Rush. And finally, what was your favorite game of this year? Favorite game of this year? Gosh, that's a big question. I you know. Hit me. I, <laughs> I, I got to think about this. Silent Hill 3 was the first thing that came to mind because this is the year that I played Silent Hill 3. I played Silent Hill 2 already. Silent Hill 2 was great. Silent Hill 3 is great. If I had to pick one, I really, really appreciated Alan Wake 2. I really appreciate Alan Wake 2 for the specific way that it represents the idiosyncrasy of what Remedy cares about. Yep. So they've wanted to do this live action fusion stuff for years. They've been building up this interconnected universe for years. And all the ways Alan Wake 2 contributes to that. I don't know if it's my favorite game this year, but it does immediately jump to mind, if only because it's so recent, mm. of being an amazing testament for how a studio's individual weird choices can stack on each other to make a brilliant, brilliant final thing. Yeah. Actually, looking at the 2023 games list, I think I do have an answer for favorite game this year. I had never played a Diablo game before Diablo 4. Oh, yeah. I played actually a little bit of Diablo 3. Didn't really hit with me. Mm. But Diablo 4, I can see a lot of the criticisms for it Mm. because what it's shooting for is it was making the accessible action role-playing game. Yeah. If you want Buckwild builds, go to Path of Exile. It's right there. But Diablo 4 having a story that that... gripped me early on, giving me really powerful, meaningful abilities, being a tight thing that I could 
play a lot of and finish and every side quest had great writing yeah. and I was enthralled by that world. I had a really unexpected experience with Diablo 4. So I'd say that's one of my favorite games this year. Amazing. This has been a huge, huge year. But unfortunately, we've been so passionate and so full of love for this industry that we've run out of time. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. Do you have any last words? If you appreciate the perspective that I'm talking about here, if you want to cool, play cool slow-mo action games and or a crime game about adorable animals that <laughs> could get perceived <laughs> as promoting child gambling... El Paso Elsewhere and Sunshine Shuffle came out in 2023, their latest games from Strange Scaffold. We've got a lot of games coming out in the on the horizon, so follow H, at Strange Scaffold wherever you follow games news, at Rit Nelson if you want to follow the work I'm doing. We're trying to make really special games for y'all, and uh, hopefully sometimes do a little dance and tell you about uh, horrific big brain business news <laughs> at the same time to, to discuss our own process, too. All right, well... Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you so much for having me. You're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> you're so cool. <laughs> and a big thank you to you for listening. If you're liking what you're hearing and you'd like to hear some more, consider supporting Back Pocket over on Patreon. If you support us at the silver tier and above, you can get access to our bonus episodes. In this week's bonus episode, I'm hosting the Pocket Buds Game Awards of 2023 with Josh. Yay! And hey, if you really like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using? Better yet, why not give us a nice little review? El Nuke said, Ruby's passion is so evident. It's refreshing to hear a gaming podcast that actually likes video games. Fantastic guests from developers to journalists to enthusiasts always bring insightful and interesting conversation, and Ruby's humor constantly has me cracking up. Pocket Buds has quickly become a favorite of mine, and along with Back Pocket, new episodes are a highlight of each week. Thank you, El Nuke. And also, thank you to everybody who showed their Spotify wrapped with Pocket Buds right there in it. That was really, really awesome to see, and thank you so much for listening. You can also find us on Twitch, where we've got our main live show every Thursday from 7 p.m. and on TikTok where we're constantly posting very good stuff for you to cast your big beautiful eyes on and then there's the socials a la Twitter and threads and whatnot which you're also welcome to get around once again thanks so much for tuning in and as me at the end of 2023 would say bye selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.